This is Swampside Chats, a podcast where every week commies sit down to shoot the shit about current events, history, political economy, and theory. This week, we read James Boggs' The American Revolution from 1963. I'm Jake. I'm with Communist League Tampa, and joining me tonight is Lexi. Lexi from The Vanishing Herd. And tonight, what are we talking about? We're talking about The American Revolution, pages from a Negro worker's notebook by James Boggs. He was associated with the Johnson Forest Tendency, which um, included C.L.R. James and Raya Dunyovskaya, the latter who was a Trotsky secretary in Mexico for a time. And... Um, this tendency is interesting because it's sort of like an, Amer- an early sort of American analog to autonomism. And it was particularly interested in revolts of uh, people of color, both domestically and internationally. So, yeah, it was, like an, it was like an early, like kind of post-World War II effort to have like a Marxist analysis kind of independent of, you know, the sphere of like Soviet influence. Uh, mm-hmm. If memory serves, I haven't read a ton of their stuff, um, but we got somebody here who's like a big Raya fan. They're sort of an offshoot of the Schachtmanites, the sort of Cold Warrior Trotskyists. Um, like Max Schachtman was once like a principled like Trotskyist, but as things started to sour, um, he started to go more towards the side of American uh, like apologism for military escapades. Um, yeah, so. Should we just go chapter by chapter here and just... uh... Uh, Sure. So this pamphlet's pretty interesting because it's a super orthodox historical materialist kind of pamphlet. Like, it does like an old-school Marxist methodological thing, but it comes out with some crazy-ass conclusions that, like, it kind of looks like American society, and it's, like, right around the time of the civil rights movement. So, like, some of it is, is pretty on point. Stuff comes around, yeah. There's other parts of it that kind of fit more our lives now, and I think there's a sense that the movement that he was talking about, that he assumed, like civil rights and black power, black, you know, the assertion of black political power, as he's putting it, there's a sense in which that revolution was, you know, successfully held back by the government, and it may sort of be the same dynamics coming to fruition now. And maybe we should clarify a little bit, kind of like the broad themes of like what this thing focuses on, because yeah, this thing is really, really, really focused on automation mm-hmm. and the implications of automation for class struggle in the United States in particular. And when I was reading this piece, one of the things that it even by taking it super seriously in parts because he has like some extreme, extremely optimistic like takes on how soon all work is going to be automated. We're going to have like fully automated luxury communism. At one point, like he even implies that it's going to, it's just like a matter of years. And to give um, you like an idea of like how bad I got a quote here about how engineering works. That's from chapter two in the, <laughs> how it's going to work in a few years uh, with the quote, 
With the old methods, the engineer used to present his ideas to a draftsman who would make a rough sketch of these ideas, which would then be given to another draftsman to refine. A third draftsman would then draw the final blueprint, incorporating it in the exact size, appearance, and in the correct fittings to the millionth of an inch. Today, all that this same engineer has to do is talk his ideas into a tape recorder, which plays into a computer, and the ideas are transformed into a design. The design, in turn, is fed in, into a developer and, once developed, can be handed over to the foreman for building. <laughs> now, that is from the Jetsons. Like, I don't think we even have that now. I think we're just getting to the point where that's, like, a plausible technology. Yeah, that didn't happen. Like, I don't know what what kind of um, peace movement Mr. Boggs was, was chilling with that, that told him about that shit, but that didn't yeah, happen. Yeah, he heard that. He heard that sitting around a campfire smoking a do with somebody who dropped out of MIT was talking about some <laughs> cockamamie shit. That was probably the reason that they flunked out of that place in the first place. Yeah. yeah. That didn't exist. So, yeah. But not, 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 not only... to shit on this guy too much or whatever, but I mean, that's like that. What, it, this comes pretty early on in the piece and that's what like yeah. sketched me out about it. Cause I'm like, what is he talking about? Like, it's worth dwelling on that little bit of a dialectical materialist magic there that's going first of all, but, but also on the, on the apocalyptic kind of sense that he, you know, again, this is like a post Trotskyist tradition. And after reading the transitional program, you know, I can't stress enough that it's really a problem that people think the apocalypse is around the corner all the time. And this is definitely one of those documents. Like there's at one point he faults trade unions for not having taken control from capitalists entirely because if you don't do that, you're always going to get corrupted, which, you know, okay, in a certain empirical way, it bears out, but that only makes sense if, as, if the crisis is, you know, this is the final battle today. Well, how do the like, unions take control of capitalism without it, like, not being capitalism anymore? I, you know I, I, mean? I, have, I have no idea. Like, that there's, there are some parts of his politics that are unworkable. Um, he draws some like un- <laughs> a really provocative but perhaps like uh, like uh extremely totalizing kind of things that are like you know organized labor is necessarily reactionary now like uh, in any sense which in our climate is is at once when you look at organized labor f- like for what is left is true but then when you think about the way that things are are going with labor rights legislatively it, it does seem that Organized labor is actually a progressive cause in a sense still. <laughs> well, I mean, it was certainly empirically true when he was talking you know, about it at the time. It's probably it's true now. I mean, this is this is still the result of the Red Scare when, you know, all the good organizers got thrown out of these unions and they, you know, became accommodated to the system. So yeah, I mean, he's basically right. And, you know, there's certainly a role for labor to play in the improvement of the lives of the working class and in in pushing capitalism to its limits being like a progressive force in history and you know give providing a decent standard of living for the people who you know, live within it um, there's a role for that are the unions doing that are they doing it effectively no and you know part of that's a leadership problem part of that's larger structural issues but that's a rabbit hole that might be beyond the scope of uh, <clears throat> talking about this piece well I, I don't know if it is beyond the scope of this piece i think i think it's that's exactly the heart of the piece is is a structural dynamic that is kind of unstoppable, and I and I think this thesis, this is what makes you know endnotes or whatever so threatening, is that it has a kind of orthodox Marxist logic. There's been a 
a change within the mode of production in the forces of production that has altered the relations of production, that has altered society in a way that Marxists no longer recognize. Like, it's like an overall or, theory of historical change because he, he, he seems to, I mean, he does say it has implications comparing like the change in automation to like, you know, the change from feudalism to capitalism or whatever. But I mean, I don't know. It didn't, I mean, it seemed to be more just kind of fixated on like the recent phenomenon of automation more than anything else. But I don't know, maybe there's a deeper like historical theory at work here than, than I'm seeing. Well, like. Okay. Well, I mean, that's, that's worth, that's worth uh, kind of talking about reflecting on. Cause yeah, what I, what I'm seeing is that, I mean, he's basically saying that like the entire way of, of old Marxist politics kind of got destroyed by automation. Like, like the whole old labor politic has been like reconfigured because of. How oh, wait, okay. I thought you were, I th- okay, right. That's the, yeah, I thought you were talking about there being like some kind of larger, like trans historical theory here, unless you're, well, no, it's an instance of Marx's theory, basically. It's, okay, it's, okay, I see what you mean. It's, a, it's an application of that general sense of, well, you know, changes in the forces of, of production open up new relations of production, changes, you know, and so that's within the mode of production. Then the mode of production itself exerts, um, exerts influence over the way society is organized. And, um, yeah, so. Okay. Uh, right. It's it's an, it's sort of an instance of that theory, or maybe I'm reading into it too much, but I think that's what he's saying. No, I, I agree. I just didn't, I guess I didn't see that as like a historical thing, or as it was like a sort of pressing political problem and kind of like you know application of kind of Marxist thinking in terms of how you know technological change influences you know the means of production, which is you know I guess a, a that's historical exactly thing. What I mean. This is a strong challenge, um, and and. Shortly before the part where he's criticizing the unions for not taking absolute control away from the capitalists, which this was written in 1963, and I think it's prescient. When the situation has reached such a stage, all questions of what the union should have done or could have done, what other leaders might have done or should have done, what might have been achieved if some other policy had been followed, all these questions become completely irrelevant and abstract. To continue to think in such terms is to repeat the mistake that the Trotskyites made for 30 years as they tried to reformulate an alternative policy and leadership for Stalin, while Stalin himself was going ahead and building not only the Russian bureaucracy, but a Russia which no longer bears any resemblance to the Russia of 1917. There's a sense in which Boggs is looking at the union movement, looking at the way Trotskyists are responding to it and saying, fuck, this is the Soviet Union all over again. Like, our organizations have been just outmoded by history and now we're going to be used as vehicles of reaction. And instead of recognizing this and breaking with it, Trotsky's are going to do this critical support thing and criticize the leadership instead of being like, look, we have to break as painful as this is, we need to break from these things. I know it's the, I know it's the only organizations we have, but they're not going to help us anymore, which at the height of American Keynesian McCarthyite capitalism I think, you know, during the civil rights movement, when the unions are not necessarily coming on down on the right side, um, there's a, some real sense to this. I wish I knew a little bit more about labor relations in this period, but I don't. So I'm not sure how much I really have to say um, towards that in particular. I mean, yeah, the problem is, you know, I think that 
on some level, though, like the neoliberal period wasn't simply caused by automation. I mean, automation was a big part, but you also have like, you know, like the expansion of the world market. Um, mm-hmm. You have the way production was also shifted and like deconcentrated from particular centers and more distributed across like, you know, sort of like international um international like production lines or whatever um yeah you have like you have like the the increased like international capitalist competition as you know other countries industrialize and begin to enter the world market um you have you know declining you have like various like economic crises that kind of like underpin you know the trajectory of things like politically and economically throughout that period as well and yeah, I mean, automation is a big part of that. Um, yeah, the sort of rising organic composition of capital is going to continue to affect, you know, the way things shake up economically and politically, like in a big way. I mean, at least if you buy into, you know, Marx's value theory. Um, but I don't know. It it almost in this piece, it almost seems like because he overestimates the extent to which automation is shifting things. I think it, I think it taints his analysis a bit. The, I mean, obviously, you know, the, the uh, particular like political challenges posed by automation uh, do are, are unique uh, compared to maybe like previous, the previous points in history, but in say like the classical workers movement or prior to that as, industrialization was like going through England in like a big way. The way that society was composed was different as well. Yeah. You know, there's so many different like factors at play. Um, even, bet- and it, you know, social composition has changed even from the time he's writing to the time today. Yeah. Um, and the, it, even the form of automation itself is changing too. Um, you know, hit the automation that he was dealing with and talking about was primarily, uh, you know, in heavy industry and in, you know, uh, general production of automobiles and so on and, and you know so on and so forth yeah it's, even as a separate word for like computers like computer automation he calls it like cybernation which is maybe right. more of what he's thinking of for us yeah but that, like that's that's more what we're dealing with now is the idea that you know computers have the intelligence to enter into spheres that they previously did not have competencies in and could you know outpace human laborers which is a, a different form of automation than what we're looking at particularly here yeah um, to kind of uh reread what you were just saying because i think it's it's such an important supplementary point to what he's saying here and it means that a lot of the things that he's talking about are even more connected than he would have imagined is that improvements in uh, supply chain and logistics kind of technologies have allowed dramatic reshaping of the relations of production. That's just as important as automation itself. And, you know, not to privilege, you know, just hard technical productive forces or even just logistics technology over the way that that stuff is used by human beings in the class struggle because that's what that's what ends up being important the way that uh the bourgeoisie and its political representatives wield that internationally that really ends up becoming the issue automation is really coming to a head now not just cybernation but the 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 developments that he was talking about with automation um are perhaps coming to a head now in, in a way that he couldn't have imagined because, you know, he didn't, he, he wasn't 
looking at the 70s where they introduced consumer credit and they tried to get around this whole problem in the economy by papering over it and by creating like more of a consumer finance sector and that kind of thing. Like there's a bunch of quick fixes that capital tries. What he's right about though, is that these things are ultimately unsustainable and that there's a long-term problem. Right. But it was more sustainable than he predicted. That's that's yes. that's that's one thing that keeps bugging me is that and it also makes me think, Yeah, exactly. And it also makes me think, you know, how much of the stuff that we're looking at now in terms of, you know, these very optimistic predictions about automation is that over is that like a lot of hot air, you know? Cuz it seems like there's, you know, there's still a good deal of you know, markets that could still be opened. I mean, Africa is still extremely underdeveloped. Like it seems like there's places for capital to expand. And what happens often, you know, in places where capitalism is highly developed is we're kind of seeing, you know, like a, one example of this would be like gentrification, right? Like you have all these developed areas. So, you know, first housing was commodified by or was com- treated as a commodity in the way that they basically built the suburban uh this basically built suburbia because land was cheap out there. And so you could build a house cheaply and then sell it for a lot of money. And then when the cities uh, became hollowed out and prices of assets and capital goods and commodities as housing there as a commodity went down. So then they were able to basically rebuild that up. Right. So they, and you see that even in places where capitalism uh, isn't expanding or that are actually well-developed, certain sectors of it are kind of allowed to rot so that they could then be reinvested in later. Mm-hmm. Uh, what I'm talking about here is there's a lot of like countervailing tendencies at work, right? Because mm-hmm. Marx, you know, in volume three, he talks about the rising organic composition of capital and the tendency of the rate of profit to fall. But then he also talks about like the numerous countervailing tendencies that can sort of offset this trend. Um, and I think that that's something to to take into account, uh, even looking forward to, um, you know, the how AI will bring us, you know, fully automated luxury communism. Yeah, um, it's important for all all of us, like, you know, post-2008 Marxists to recognize, though, that before 2008, it was kind of popular to, for Marxists to assume that, well, capitalism is actually pretty good at fixing crises and to become pessimistic about crises, like, in a sense of, well, maybe capital has kind of tamed them in some basic way, like maybe there isn't like a falling rate of profit or something like that. Right. Or like, the, you know, a lot of Marxists had given into some deep pessimism that ended up, you know, just being the flip side of, you know, capitalist optimism. Right. Um, and and so, but you happen to be correct. Like, you know, we can't uh, assume that capitalism, will, this is it. We're at the final confrontation that it has nowhere to go. But there is some fairly mainstream commentary, the, the Sino-pessimists that think that there's really nowhere else that capital can go that's like China, and that mm-hmm. China's sort of like a <laughs> end of history in a cer- certain kind of investment uh, respect, that there's no more concentrated population centers to enter the market that can be, that you could put through the, the whole cycle of, of capitalist development to float a whole global economy on. You know, that that's that's not an unheard position outside of, of Marxism. Um, and the, and there also just happens to be a compelling moral argument that the huge global planet of slums is a, 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 a with plus the climate um, change uh, 
what we know about climate change. These two things together create a really grave moral situation that even people that are politically uninvolved can recognize. Mm-hmm. Um, well, that's what that's what this all comes down to is like, what do we do with the what what happens to these surplus populations that are made redundant by capitalism? That seems to be the question yeah. that like hangs over this piece. Uh, how do you how do those people compose themselves into a political force, and can they? Or you know, yeah, are the Illuminati are the Illuminati going to put us all in FEMA camps and just like wipe them out? Like, <laughs> and what I think is insightful about this piece, what's both depressing but also empirically true, is he talks about the breakdown of proletarian solidarity and how that fractitiousness ends up creating a, a new weird kind of politics where instead of you know having a the the free riding resentment of society put on like a higher class which is you know not always been true in the United States but to the extent that it was true in the labor movement you know it did produce some you know a a, a fight the man kind of politics to a degree for a while now it, it's a lot easier to paste that kind of resentment on um, those that don't work in, in the proletariat. That kind of uh, fractitiousness ends up undermining old-school class politics to such a powerful degree that you end up instead with a more of a humanist kind of polar politics. On the one hand, we have to take care of the suffering masses. On the other hand, let them starve, let them die. And that it kind of breaks class politics and that you end up seeing partisans of both points of view across all sectors of society, which there, there well, is some truth to that in American politics. I mean, poking around at like the ideology of austerity or at least how it manifests itself in the United States in terms of people who want to like cut welfare programs and so on and so forth. I don't think it really manifests itself consciously as in like let them starve or let them die. I mean, unless you're talking about like maybe like extreme like racist sentiments that exist in certain places, which are certainly valid. Um, But I think more often um, in terms of like cutting welfare programs, they have to frame it in terms of, well, there's people cheating these programs or it's just creating dependency because actually they're really lazy and they just don't want to, they don't want to work. And so, you know, the, the, the idea that there are enough jobs and that if everybody just has enough initiative, they can find a way to make some money. I think is a huge like piece of like ideological cement that can hold the whole edifice together um, in a way that a lot of people that still think of themselves as being like humane or humanists or whatever, um, or think of themselves as having, you know, not being miserly or whatever. Yeah. There, there are times when, you know, the white people in the working class could say that about people of color in the working class and be like, I don't see what the problem is. Um, now, uh, White workers feel it, too, to the point where white workers are sometimes white non-workers and long-term unemployed and part of these big surplus populations. Um, So that it's really liberals that echo that sentiment more than anything. During the campaign, uh, election campaign, there was that America is already great thing. Right. You know, not understanding why (laughs) that resentment is there. Well, and yeah, it is, I mean, it is expanding and happening to like the white working class, but I think within a lot of the white working class, not just the white working class, the working class generally in the United States, um, these things are framed as 
ethical and like moral issues because they look at the people whose lives are falling apart and they're probably doing drugs to a certain extent. You know, they're, they're probably, they probably, their social life is, or their, their family life is probably chaotic in some way. And so it's like, well, see, those people didn't have the right work ethic and they didn't have the right, um, way of like maintaining their shit essentially. And so mm. that's why things are going to shit. Like they don't even see it. They don't, they're, uh, I think in a lot of like, you know, down home, like conservative ideology, like there isn't even a way to see it in terms of like broader forces, except, you know, occasionally the idea that, you know, the, the government is somehow nefariously behind this in some way, you know, like, or the occasional round of like scapegoating that exists. Like it, 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 so much of it in terms of explaining like inner class stuff is, is framed in mm. terms of like ethos. And that's how you get like all this like prosperity gospel shit, right? Yeah. Where it's, where it's like, you know, you have to have, you really just, and even the stuff that's like secular, that isn't even, uh, you know, Christian, yeah. like literal prosperity, just this, this idea of like, you know, you got to hustle, you got to hustle harder than you hate. Look at me, how hard I'm working, like all that shit. Um, all of that, ha- it comes from like the same kind of um, strange, like ethical view that, you know, it's it's all in terms of like your personal practices can like resolve. Like there really is nothing wrong with the system. Like you're just lazy. Boggs is right to say that there's something about our structural situation that produces a p- political landscape like this, a depressing political landscape like this. Um, and even though that I, even though there might be a class basis to these things more so than he's si- giving it credit for, it's certainly less obvious than the old school labor movement politic. Um, like way less obvious and w- way more problematic, way more fractitious. And, well, and, and part of it is, you know, he, he gets into a part where he talks about how, you know, within the union, like workers would consistently like seem to prioritize being able to have like TVs and shit over like hardcore class struggle. And, you know, I mean, another problem that I guess like he brings up is the way that, you know, capitalism has become has you know developed the productive forces to such an extent that you know it has a pretty it has like a much larger like slush fund of like mm-hmm. things it can use to buy people off essentially while still nominally keeping the system going which is uh, you know poses a particular kind of problem all its own yeah i mean that that's another forces relations kind of thing like fucking mass produced awesome shit that's you know like sweet tchotchkes that you know I like sweet techno tchotchkes. Like, you keep cranking yeah. out iPhones, you know. It might not mind being in dystopia, right? Like, yeah, basically. Yeah, it's like, uh, you know, yeah, everything's going to hell in a handbasket. But look, dude, look how look look how cool this Marvel movie looks. Look all the, look at this yeah. high end CG. You know, look yeah. look at you got you got Netflix. You can watch you can watch anything you want. It's nine dollars a month, dude. That's crazy. You know. I want VR. I want. I want to jump into the that, most. That's coming. You know, the most enveloping fantasy. You know, it's, it's most. I mean, it's right mostly. Now. It's mostly porn right now. But that was true about VHS <laughs> when that was first introduced too. So, is that true? Yeah, like wow. like the, the thing driving like like a ta- like a videotape sales was porn. Wow, the vanguard of technology. Yeah. <laughs> Same with the internet too. Like early days, like when the internet really started to take off, like the thing that's one of the biggest things on it was porn. The, the dominance of porn is a good way to, to describe the decadence of proletarian morality that is not mentioned in this text whatsoever. Um, yeah. I wonder, and this is a little off topic, but I did wonder, I mean, what the porn was like in the Soviet Union. You know? <laughs> like, what, 
What was it? I mean, it was the people having to like make that as like zines, like you know, in somebody's garage and like circulate it through like the black market or prior to Playboy, like there was you know, like that was like black market shit. Um, wow. But anyway, so what? Uh, what else? Web. Yeah. Well, no, like in like uh, prior to like Playboy magazine, like you know, like that, like that stuff actually went a long way towards making porn like more reputable in the United States. Because before that, it was like you know. You know, you have to like sneak into like some, you know, some speakeasy so you could like crank a wheel and like watch some woman like show like the bottom of her ankle, or that's, that's how I imagine porn works prior to that. <laughs> yeah, well, a mere hundred years later, and yeah. it's virtual reality. Yeah, no, I mean, I just anyway, so what else, what else do we, uh, what else is there to talk about in this piece? <laughs> well, um. Following the political change, so I guess to go to uh, chapter three, there's this concept of the classless society that he's like, it's a, a little brief meditation on what it would mean. And um, he's trying to articulate some kind of break with European Marxism that's focusing on like poverty and redistribution. And he's taking it to, on the one hand, a more like autonomous place of like you know people seizing control over the conditions of their lives on the other hand he's taking it to a place of abolishing um all kinds of antagonisms and mediations um which is pretty forward thinking and drives a more sophisticated idea of what um class is i mean i don't i think he's using he isn't using class in a sense of like a, a macro, like a hierarchical principle. You know, he's using language that, well, then there, there's race and then there's class. But he says all the time that these things are like intricately like built in with each other, which I think is right. And he's kind of proposing that the classless society will also be addressing these issues as well. I mean, yeah, it would have, I mean, it would have to. You, like, you couldn't have like communism where there were still like you know, races or whatever. <laughs> like you couldn't, you couldn't yeah. build it. You couldn't build it. And like, you, it wouldn't, it wouldn't be communism. It'd be, you know, it'd be national socialism or some shit like that. Yeah. This isn't uh particularly groundbreaking to us considering, you know, a lot of us are coming to communism with this spirit in mind, but you know, 1963, right. Hey, yeah. <laughs> um, yeah, dude, I don't think the Stooges were even a band yet at this point. That's how long ago this was, yeah. Wow. Well, it's like 50, like four years ago. Like when I was reading that thing about um, the labor movement and how Trotskyists were looking at the labor movement, I, I just have been having conversations like that recently. And I was like, damn, these conversations have been going on for a long time. <laughs> like yeah. it, it just gives one a sense of gravity of how long it's been this way. And, um, you know, and he's saying right here, look, this is, and he doesn't like distinguish between, you know, a movement of the proletariat or, you know, the labor movement, but he's just saying, look, they're not going to organize this way again. It's not going to be like this. He also thinks, you know, organized labor can only be reactionary. So I don't know. Uh, it's one of those uh, things that he thinks, well, it can't happen. So good, good that it can't happen because it was reactionary anyway. Um, but maybe, maybe that's not true. Anyway, um, the section on the outsiders, the outsiders is like the central concept here. 
and um, the big revision to classical Marxism is that he wants to skip lower stage socialism, okay. where lower stage socialism is the thing that makes Lenin quote St. Paul, uh, that he who does not work, neither shall he eat. This there's th- this concept where you're at some point going to be, ha- be having to contribute. Uh, he Boggs thinks that automation means we can skip straight to fully auction, uh, fully automated luxury communism, more or less. Um, well, and just to clarify a little bit about this section, um, he's looking at this through the lens of his experience dealing with the unions. Um, because I think the, what the outsiders refers to is basically people outside the union, people outside, uh, outside the realm of organized labor and kind of the attitudes of the unions to those people, um, who are just, who are basically seen as being a nuisance no matter what they do. Um, and not really a particular, the core concern of the unions themselves, even though in, uh, in Boggs' opinion, and rightly so, you know, the relationship to the, you know, outside community, outside of the union is actually extremely important. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, I mean, just even just like on a practical level, and maybe this is a symptom of the extent to which, you know, these unions became increasingly reliant on like legal procedure as opposed to, you know, like direct action as a means to you know, get what they want. Well, there's also a sense that Boggs is alluding to that Marx was pretty much right about the way social dynamics uh, were developing for a while. And um, Boggs credits Marx with giving basically the right account of something like the rise of the CIO, um, but then says that because of this change in forces of production, therefore, uh, Marx's analysis no longer holds. Like so, he I don't know. He's he's giving Marx like a he, his model his model for the development of the working class is Marx, like for sure. That he's basically looking at this through the lens of his experience of dealing with the unions at the time. Um, I think is an important bit of context to understand uh, about yeah. what he's saying here. I actually don't know how much he actually repudiates Marx here. To I mean, he's looking. I think he's looking at a changed uh, a changing landscape in terms of the like you know, composition of capital, but I don't know if saying like the era of like classical labor is over necessarily like repudiates Marx's like analysis of class. I don't know. Oh, no, no. I don't think he's repudiating. Well, he certainly wouldn't see himself as repudiating Marx in any sense. Like he sees himself as continuing Marx. It just so happens that he ends up with a very different political conclusion with regards to, uh, labor, the way labor is going to respond to communist politics, and that labor, because it's uh, organized around work, is now fundamentally reactionary because it has to think of everything in terms of, you know, uh, full employment, which is now to us like a, a Keynesian dream along the line of a planned economy like yeah. in our world. And this, this is the big break between Boggs and us is that you know the technical change that he's seeing has really set in and the political effects of that have really set in and organized labor really is the vanishing herd that he said it was but it's hard for me to see 
labor as reactionary, despite the fact that where organized labor does appear, it is very stodgy. It's, you know, mostly in the pocket of the Democrats or, or you know, even worse, like where, where organized labor appears, it, it does appear to be quite reactionary. But I don't think it I don't think all of his opinions about work politics follow. I think there's still going to be labor to an important sense, even though I do think he's right that any communist movement is going to have to have like a grounding with the outsiders in a, in a way that reflects like self interest and not just some kind of like, I don't even know if he gets into this, but uh, not just, you know, Oh, those poor outsiders, let's provide for them. He's sort of agnostic on whether the outsiders are going to be a revolutionary subject, which I think is, is a sober, sober thing to say. There have always been like, you know, surplus populations kind of redundant to the system. Um, yeah. I mean, I don't like, you know, as, at times, you know, Marx and Engels had a very dim view of the lumpen proletariat uh, and in yeah. many cases, rightly so. So, yeah, I mean, it, that, that that's, you know, that's the major question, but it, it all depends on, you know, by what means they become surplus to the system, you know, how it happens, because how it happens is a big part. If it happens, you know, overnight, like he seems to be saying it will, um, that has different implications for if it happens over the course of 50 to 100 years. And, you know, to what extent could there be a, like a, a wave of, you know, I don't know, radical communist organizing that is focusing on the issue of of, of unemployment or something like that? I mean... That's the here's that's the frustrating thing is because he's even looking at the CIO in the 30s and saying this is a, this is still an insufficient response. And so for I guess I'm looking at this trying to think about the questions we're having around you know do we try to revive a labor movement right now like which I think it would be good to see a labor movement regardless of whether there's something intrinsically communist about a labor movement. I don't think it's quite as reactionary as he's making it sound. I think politics of work is still of central importance, despite the fact that, yes, we do have the technical basis for some people simply not to work. And there are a lot of people that are simply locked out of the possibility of work and don't have an identity around work. Yeah, I mean, the question is always, you know, if not if not labor, then where did where? Where does it come from? Like, where does where's an effective where's an effective place to resist capitalism, if not um, from the workplace? You know, if you don't have if you don't have some kind of robust labor movement, you know, how do you how do you how do you, how do you have like a rising working class power if there's no if there, especially if there's no working class? You know, I mean, I, I feel like this yeah. might this might actually be a big part of like why conspiracy like Illuminati stuff is like such a big uh, popular thing, like in in like mm. American society, because you know the fear of like redundancy lends itself well to this idea that like, well, the elites they're gonna like create their robots and they're gonna have like their Elysium enclaves and then they'll just you know they'll wipe us all out by you know putting poison in the water, giving our kids autism, building FEMA camps and rounding people up, you know. Yeah. <laughs> well, <laughs> you like- know, there's. There's a serious Malthusian streak to all that, that, you know, there's big, you know, overpopulation and the elites are going to just annihilate us in one way or another. And I mean, look, you know, their particular proposals are crazy, but from the long historical view, the angel of history says could be like, (laughs) what is, what is the typical way 
of dealing with, you know, surplus populations. Well, you know, if you're lucky, <laughs> they die they die out in some kind of plague. Otherwise, you got to send them to war. Well, and, and that's what he gets into in Chapter 5. Well, the traditional way of managing surplus population or, you know, people just sitting around without enough to do, send them to war. But we can't do that anymore because a, a war will destroy the whole world. <laughs> well, they, I mean, the U.S. did manage to find a couple of wars along the way, though. I mean, that's true. <laughs> that's that's true. And the um, the chapter on uh, imperialism um, is kind of before, I guess, the anti-war movement breaks out. And he kind of gestures towards... You know, will the um, I think I forget where in the pamphlet is, but he kind of gestures towards, you know, will the peace movement realize that maybe, you know, Cuba might have a, a right to a missile because of American imperialism? Will the peace movement realize that um, that American institutions are creating weapons, you know, that the American economy sells weapons everywhere? And the answer is yes, they will become like something like an anti-imperialist movement like and yeah. but this is before that. And so uh, in chapter six, the one after the one on the bomb, he kind of gets into some of those dynamics, which both of these chapters is, is part of a sort of investigation into what kind of movements there are today and to see in which ways that they're trying to challenge capitalism on the basis that he's, you know, provided us like. Right. Well, yeah. And there was, you know, there was a lot of hope you know, within the peace movement that it could act as like this major transformational force. Cause you know, you had the atom bomb lingering overhead and, you know, that was the sort of Damocles that it, people felt was like lingering over civilization. And then, yeah, obviously you had like the, you had the anti-imperialist element and then just the idea of people, I think people were probably fairly aware of the extent to which the U S economy was essentially a war economy running in peacetime. And, you know, uh, that would the idea that if you could, you know, you could change and adjust that, you know, you'd transform society in a pretty fundamental way. But, you know, the question is, like, how do you how would the peace movement actually accomplish that by, you know, like having having concerts and picketing uh, <laughs> yeah. in front of uh, their campus uh, mess hall or whatever? Yeah. Um, and, you know, that that becomes especially felt when in Chapter seven when we're talking about the civil rights movement. And the, you know, this is probably the most convincing, this is the most convincing, like, kind of alternative to a labor, um, you know, revolutionary way of thinking. And this was, you know, a cause of optimism in the new left. This was probably the most likely site of, you know, some kind of, you know, new left inspired communist revolution in the United States (laughs) would, you know. To whatever extent that was an entirely fucking crazy long shot, but it really was, um, you know, what was the Black Liberation Movement? No, yeah, I mean, yeah, black people, you know, basically sat in like this kind of like one of like the at the cornerstone of like all the kind of like contradictions of American society. Uh, so yeah, yeah, I mean, to, to see them it, as a major like revolutionary subject in this country is makes a lot of sense, and it's it, true. It's true in a lot of ways. In in a way, like. You know, in a really bizarre way, in the way that he's trying to, like, explain that people locked out of the society end up actually projecting a sort of universal interest in a way that, you know, the old school factory proletariat used to be thought of as doing. 
that's the thing. We can stand here 50 years later and be like, well, these did not replace the labor movement, although they were an, uh, an inspiring kind of coalescence of something that was, you know, especially in the black freedom movement based in the proletariat. One has, yeah. to, one has to say that. Like, um, and at a time when a lot of people's children were going to school, um, even at struggles around education were movements of the proletariat to an important degree. Yeah. Like, I mean, you know, the civil rights movement and uh, the black power movement and so forth are tremendously important. Um, I have a lot of respect for the Black Panther Party and like what they attempted, you know, in many ways what they attempted to do. Um, yeah. In, in terms of like, you know, using like community aid as a kind of, Maybe maybe I never got to the point where you could say it was really like a counterpower, but you know it, it was nothing to sneeze at, and you know fighting cops like that's noble work. Yeah, the, the the police watch and that kind of stuff. Like yeah, but I'm just honestly like you know it's been about fifty years since they they got uh, founded the Black Panther Party. They're probably one of the most important American Marxist. I mean they're they're the most important American Marxist organization at least in the last fifty years, if not like ever. Like yeah. Just, and- yeah, and the suit, the suits look good. You know, it's well, it's memorable. Like, people remember them suits. Like, you know, there is a no one, no, one, no, one, no one remembers how like Communist Party USA dressed. <laughs> there is a spectacular edge to their politics, which was part of their appeal and is part of the problem with their politics. But it, yeah. it's it's something that we wouldn't be able to ignore if we did politics now. The spectacular yeah. side of things. I mean, it overwhelms the content of everything. We're not going to engage with that anyway. Uh, <laughs> the um, I I say all that just to say that um, in the same way that you know people look back to the labor movement or the Russian Revolution to try to figure out how to you know make a revolution out of today, um, it also makes sense to look at uh, the new left, the anti-war movement, and the you know kind of the separate populations that kind of found these common interests. Um, I mean, despite what, uh, <laughs> d- despite what um, Bog says about blacks and whites, you know, not having the same interests in the United States, I think he has a challenging argument, but, um, but I think it can be said that, especially in the poor people's campaign, the apex of the civil rights movement and the way that the uh, anti-war movement converges with uh, anti-imperialism and black power, that there is a point where there is like a really common universal proletarian interest that was felt out through all these different non-work struggles. Um, and that some combination of struggles around work and those kind of struggles are going to have to be part of the communist movement. Um, non-work struggles, because those are the issues that are alive. These are the things that people are actually on fire about today. And then work struggles, because I mean, these are just intrinsic to a movement that can change society. If you don't have any hands on the levers of power at all, and, you know, that's sort of a lot of the situation. Yeah, if you don't have any levers levers of power, they just round you up and put you in the FEMA camps, and then you're done. (laughs) Well, something that I think, uh, (laughs) you know, quote neo-Kautskyism, quote, uh, could, you know, kind of gesture towards is that maybe there's some way that we can, you know, leverage um kind of like the holes in, in the like legislative like agendas of the various parties to kind of like pop a little like obstructionist candidates up in like little districts that don't matter that you know people won't be 
that the Democratic Party isn't going to be like, you know, trying to win this little district in New Jersey or something like and um, try try to create some kind of like, you know, spectacular, like anti-political kind of <laughs> base by like trying to block things the government is doing. I don't know. Like <laughs> that's that's there's like a, there's a thought. It's just a fucking I watched uh, Michael Moore's uh, Ficus for Congress recently and he runs a ficus plant. What was that? Uh, so yeah, Michael Moore runs a ficus plant f- uh, against a sitting house member in New Jersey and it looks like he more or less like won. Like the ficus plant I think wins against the sitting congressperson. Um yeah. but they but they don't like they don't let it happen. Anyway, the point being that there are these little vulnerable spots that you can do spectacular anti-political stunts, and that doesn't really require that much of a social base to pull off. Well, yeah, I mean that's how we have that's how we have our current president. <laughs> <laughs> Yo, I mean, isn't, yeah. isn't that isn't that kind of what Trump is? Is just like a spectacular anti-political stunt that just went way too far. Holy shit! You're right. Well. Uh, <laughs> mind fucking blown uh, anyway the reason i brought that up is because i I was gonna say there's no potential path to political power there but then you brought up donald trump and i'm all flustered um but on you know on the left it would be hard to imagine that you know like evolving into like an independent political party or some you know 20th century wet dream like you know our neo katsky's friends uh, would, would want it to Without the labor movement or without without some kind of um, proletarian, like class independent organizations to base a party on. Um, and so this is a problem that I've been struggling with because I don't know. I like neo-Kautskyism. I think it, it offers a, a way of preserving some like Marxist intuitions about um, how to build a socialist movement um, without giving in to Leninism, at least at its best. And um Unfortunately, neo-Kautskyism doesn't really give us a way of dealing with the, the end of the labor movement. And um, it is maybe some kind of engagement with democratic institutions that I think in ways that don't require a mass political base, you know, to already be organized, associated and skilled. <laughs> like, you, say, you say Democrat, you mean small D Democrat, right? I do mean small D Democrat. Yeah. Uh, apologies yeah, okay. for the confusion. Just to be, just to be clear. One thing I want to say about um, reading stuff like this, you know, I mean, I feel like maybe I'm coming across as like super negative or whatever. Um, But I think it's like when you get to a point where like you read enough of this stuff, like the stuff that you would agree with and be like, yeah, right on, man. You know, (laughs) like when you just started reading reading this stuff kind of just becomes like white noise to you. Right. And, And then you like you look through it and it just becomes like little like minor points where you're like, oh, well, that's dumb. And then, you know. Because that's mm-hmm. that, that's what holds a certain degree of novelty, um, and in that spirit, there's one other thing where I'm like, "Well, that was kind of dumb," and that <laughs> was, uh, oh, where he talks about um, how like American Marxists basically need to stop like talking about Russia and look more towards the you know potentials for uh, particular you know, development. So like the working class in the United States is a basis for like their theories or whatever. Hmm. And well, you know, there's a lot of truth to that. I think it's kind of, it's kind of like a weird, cause it like the reasons for looking at the Soviet union and having like endless debates about what happened there are pretty, pretty 
significant. I mean, like, it's not like the United States was, it's not like United States communists were the only ones embroiled in these debates. And the extent to which it, like, distracted people from maybe actually doing, you know, developing, like, a more homegrown, like, American communism or whatever, um, the extent to which it did was also probably a signal of, like, the weakness of existing communist groupings in the United States at the time. Because, you know, the common turn under Stalin, you know, pretty much had a had a pretty strong interest in controlling uh, leftist part or communist parties throughout the globe in that period. And even after that, I mean, Jesus Christ, yeah. here in Tampa, like we're still dealing with Stalinists, like Stalinist cadres <laughs> who, you know, are, are bucking up the left and so on. So, you know, the fact yeah, that but they, there's, there's no, like, there's no like communist international behind them exporting that obsession anymore though. Well, yeah, I mean, now now there's less of an excuse for it than that's my point. Like, like the, I think I think the, the the existence of like this massive apparatus that could like insinuate itself into every debate, um, or or even you know uh, fund certain groups over others and thus give them political advantages and priority, uh, and tip the debates you know within you know the world communist movement, you know was pretty extensive, and so it makes sense that Russia would be a major factor for debate and the way that people would you know, determine their politics depending on, you know, which sort of, which sort of position with regards to this. I mean, hell, even, even like, uh, you know, out of the Johnson force tendency with like Raya and all those guys, you get the, you get the state capitals up there. Like they're even taking like a position on this, on this pretty big question. Like, I don't think yeah. it's just a, it's just a matter of, you know, he almost like kind of reminds me of like literary critics who complain about how like people don't appreciate the rich literary tradition that came up in the United States. You know, like, why are you being so Eurocentric and you're, you know, <laughs> I mean, I hear what you're saying. And in a certain respect, like, of course it makes sense. But I mean, you got to understand, like all of American communism was dominated by uh, the Soviet foreign policy. And it's like, Various the justifications for its various twists and turns, and right. as a Trots and not only as a Trotskyist, but as like an ex-Trotskyist, someone who saw the same problematic tendencies in just in the negative of the Stalinist in Trotskyists, you know, you might be tempted to say to yourself, "Gee, wouldn't it be better if we stopped like obsessing over this and figure out what the fuck's going on in our country because we're trying to export Lenin here, and that's fucking stupid," like. So I don't know. I have like a, I, I, I understand why one might, you know, want to prioritize uh, Russia, and espe- but especially in the United States. I mean, like, really, you're trying to organize in fucking McCarthy's United States and all you want to talk about is Russia. You don't want to talk about the workers movement right here or you don't want to talk about the civil rights movement right here or the peace movement right here. You want to talk about the class character of we all say it's the enemy. And so I, I have to like weigh in on that right now. Like there's a sort of continuity to now where leftists want to talk about fucking everything except what's right in front of them. Um, and I don't know, like it reflects a certain detachment from conditions. And the best thing about the Johnson forest tendency is that it's super rooted in where the, the research is, is taking place. They're really trying to like dig into American conditions and right. a problem with nationalism is is that um, we've like allowed nationalism to take too many things. And being interested in the place where you live is one of those things we need to take back from nationalism because it's important to like live where you are, like, and to know things about where you are and why it is the way it is. And I think Marxists 
are super obsessed with the, the grand hi- historical sweep of things for good reasons and tend to think in terms of very distant places as being much more important than what's in front of them. There's a long-term alienated problem in Western culture that that reflects, I guess, and I'm suspicious of it. Is there anything else we need to cover? His theory of, of uh, race and class is, uh, and kind of the way he talks about the the interests, uh, you know, that there's just irreconcilable interests of, of uh, blacks and whites in the United States. I find a on the one hand, a little disturbing. On the other hand, we hadn't gone through the civil rights movement. <laughs> I wonder if seeing how the you know Black Power Revolution was crushed, would he feel differently today? Would he say that you know Black and White unite and fight? And that that was a Communist Party, I think, slogan. Um, so he's not just saying that this is a stupid idea, but I think he's referring to a policy that's behind it as well, because. Isolated from that context, I like the slogan, black and white, unite and fight. But Grimes, yeah, it's got that going for it. He talks about, um, he does get into talk about the FBI and the CIA and the sort of growing police state, I guess you could say, of the United States. So, you know, I think, you know, given the way that the things played out, you know, I don't think he would have, he was ended up being too surprised by the turn thing things took. I I think you're right. The, the uh, chapter seven. Um, opens with this. When people talk about how many Russians were killed behind the Iron Curtain in the concentration camps, it doesn't move American Negroes at all. The reason is very simple. The same thing happened to them in this country. What American workers didn't have to go through, what the Russian workers went through under Stalin, because the Negroes went through it for them on the cotton plantations of the South. Every immigrant who walked off the gangplank to make his way into the land of opportunity was climbing onto the Negro's backs. I think Vladimir Putin should read that, like, next time he's in the United States, people are giving him shit. <laughs> it's like, hey, yeah, like, your shit don't stink. Well, that was, the, ma- that was the major uh, foreign policy response from the Soviet Union every single time <laughs> uh, the Americans would point out to the Soviet Union, yo, crazy human rights abuses, Stalin. That it was this was a classic quote, and you are lynching Negroes was always the rebuttal. It is it is part partially sort of a logical fallacy of just being like, hey, I mean, you're doing it. Yeah. On the one hand, on the other hand, it is a very effective ad hominem <laughs> argument. It's like, yeah, I mean, look, like you're there's a specific form of it. I'm forgetting. It's called like utak tak or whatever. I don't know Latin, and um, it's kind of like, well, I mean, yeah, you do it too. Um, The thing is, is that the way the United States does it is, or at least did it for so long, if not does it now, it's the very least, is much more like Nazi Germany than it is like um, the USSR. Because the USSR, the the terror took on this strange universal dimension where no one was really safe. (laughs) Yeah. Uh, It was equal opportunity. Yeah. Whereas in Nazi Germany, there, you know, there's a really specific population that was going to bear the brunt of it. And that's, you know, that's, that would be my addendum there. Um, that's a good, I, I'm surprised I haven't used that yet. Like just arguing some with somebody in person. Mm. I, I gotta, I gotta, I gotta put that in the old back pocket. Save that for later. <laughs> this comment about class, race, and nation are all involved. It is not purely a question of race that has never purely been a question of race. The resulting picture he paints is pretty complex. And the way he talks about it strikes me as like 
almost like dumb intersectional talk where it's like, oh, these things are totally different. But right now they're all together. You know what I mean? And he's making a, a fairly sophisticated point about the way class composition works in the United States now. Like, and that the, the struggle of black people in the United States has the aspects of like classical, you know, economic class division, but also has this racial component, but also has a national component. And when he's talking about a national component, I'm not even sure he means it in the sense of black nationalism. I almost think he means it in the sense that what happens with black people in the United States is so fundamental to the character of the United States. That appears to be what he's saying when he's saying it's a, it's a, a national question of, yeah, it start it, it almost knocks at the door of third worldism a little bit, but I, yeah. I, I don't, I don't know if it quite goes there. No, um, that, I mean, that stuff was kind of, I mean, that was probably well, 63. I mean, it was probably in the air at the time to an extent, but right. Know, I think not, it was not quite there yet. You weren't at like the height of Nam and I don't know. The cultural revolution didn't happen in China until like 67. When was a, a Cuban revolution? I guess it was that post-Cuban revolution. So yeah, I guess it was yeah. there a little bit, but um, yeah, it wasn't like because it wasn't like full on like 68 Maoism that wouldn't come for like another five years. Yeah, because Maoism gets a certain amount of force from like there you know there was a period where this was like you know true to a weak extent that america had this exorbitant fucking standard of living and you know there was some like pretty brutal like exploitation in the third world and it you know would seem reasonable to say that these things are related yeah but like like yeah know. yeah it's i mean it's it he doesn't yeah he doesn't go full like jay sakai or whatever <laughs> but uh you know it's there's a little a little bit of the third world there's a touch of it there just a susan Third world, third world isn't thrown it, but it's not enough. It doesn't derail the piece in a significant way. I don't think it, it doesn't derail the piece, yeah. and and you know what? It, it kind of points to that you know kernel of truth there. Like there's a kernel of truth there right. that needs to kind of be acknowledged in order to make a complex and robust theory of the international proletariat. It derails the piece for me less than his claims that they have like a Jetsons like <laughs> dictation machine like. I just want to know. I want to know what, because so much of this seems like really well researched from personal experience. I just really want to know why that slipped in there. Like, I mean, maybe maybe that thing exists. I don't know. <laughs> it was a, it a really, suppressed. It really sounds like it doesn't. 